0: But it's good to be with you guys. We welcome you to, uh, to RHC. If you're new to us today, welcome. We're glad you're here. And, uh, and if you're old to us, welcome. We're glad you're here. Good to see you guys. Good to see you guys, everyone. Uh, two Sundays ago, we began a little mini-series entitled Testing the Spirits, which is pretty much all about visions, tongues, and miracles, those signs. Uh, and the goal of the series is really to build up a solid biblical theology of these things so that we can, as Christians, test, uh, you know, what we and others believe and practice and and put forth. Uh, And ultimately, if we study the Scripture and develop a sound theology on these things, I mean, not only can we test uh, what is true and what is false out there or in our own lives, but we can ultimately align ourselves with the truth and, ...and bring more glory to God and live for Him. And that's really kind of the goal. Um, We live in an era of unprecedented biblical ignorance. Never before has ignorance of the truth been so high. Not only in culture, as we see in the good old U.S., uh, but also within the church. Uh, And it's very startling. It's, It's very alarming... Uh, I, I suppose it is, if you really care, uh, to those who seem to not really care and remain aloof in the church, uh, then, you know, ignorance is bliss, I suppose. Uh, but uh, someone like me is highly concerned as a pastor, pastor of this church, and I, I'm sure that many of you are too. Um, the church has, in many ways, I I believe, succumbed to postmodern thought, uh, which has basically led it to take on a very relativistic, a very subjective attitude about the truth. Uh, In many ways, the people of God have become like the Israelites during the time of judges uh, when they essentially had no king and all of them pretty much did what was right in their own eyes. The church acts as if it has no rock-solid objective truth. Uh, The scriptures are open to interpretation, and each Christian is his or her own interpreter. Uh, Forget about orthodoxy, uh, forget about church history, forget about trustworthy scholarship, uh, and what matters most to so many is what makes sense to them and what makes them and others feel good. Now, this is not true of every believer, Not every believer has exchanged the truth for lies and for feel-good fiction, uh, but many, many in the church have, and that is great reason to be alarmed. Um, This sort of attitude is plaguing the church today, I believe, in many, many, many ways. And in my opinion... Uh, my humble opinion, I should say, we really need to get back to the Bible. We need to get back to what the Bible teaches. We need to believe what the Bible teaches. We need to obey what the Bible says and what it teaches, especially in regards to visions, tongues, and miracles, amongst other things. But our focus is on those three. Visions, tongues, and miracles have become so prevalent in the church today that the church's mission to preach and reach the world for Christ has in many ways been lost, or is at least being threatened. And speculation and things like speculation, things like disunity are on the rise in the church. We we look out at the church and we see our brothers and sisters in these different circles, and they're engaging in all of these different things. And 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 so many of us perceive and believe, according to Scripture, that what they're engaging in, these things aren't biblical. And so that brings about disunity and strife between local bodies and what have you. And it it shouldn't be that way. You know, we have, I think, 30,000 plus denominations within Christendom. I mean, that's an indicator of something there. Maybe a problem, maybe a good thing in some ways. But speculation, disunity, these things are on the rise because of the way the church is dealing with the truth or their lack thereof dealing with the truth rightfully. The Bible has much to say about visions, tongues, and miracles, and it is, I believe, our duty as Christians to study the subject thoroughly so that we can turn from our errors, if we have them, and so that we can help others turn from their errors, and so that we can really join together and work together for the glory of God and for the good of our city. I believe that. Last week and the week before, we focused on visions in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. You can listen to those sermons uh, on our website if you desire to. I would strongly recommend that if you were not here or if you missed, if you'd like to track with what we've been talking about here, go to the website and listen to these things. It's real simple. I think it's like www.rhcmodesto.com. Easy to remember. But go there and listen. Take a listen. And send feedback through email or call or whatever, but it's good to talk about these things. This morning, we're going to be focusing on tongues. We're transitioning away from visions. We covered them from the Old and New Testament. Now, So this, this morning, we're really going to be focusing on tongues, which is an interesting topic, a confusing topic, a mysterious topic. Even right now, as I think about it, I'm filled with a little trepidation, like, hmm. How do we go about this? How do we deal with this? It's so prevalent. Is it true? Is it false? What is going on here? So it's an interesting thing to talk about. I suppose the first question I should begin an answer begin with an answer would be, what are tongues? Uh, the Bible refers to tongues, particularly in the New Testament. What are tongues? What is tongues? Uh, tongues is, by definition, a spiritual gift from God to believers. The gift of tongues is essentially the supernatural ability to speak in a human language that had not been learned by the one speaking. That is essentially what it is. It is like a person being anointed, blessed with this gift, and they can speak this language that they don't understand. Others will, but they do not. And so it's a supernatural, it's a sign, it's a spiritual gift. Now Jesus prophesied that tongues would be one of the signs that accompanied those who believe. Uh, he, he literally did. He said that this would be one of the things that would accompany those who believe. And where did he articulate this? He articulated it, he uh, sort of prophesied it, if you will, in Mark 16, 17 to 18. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but if you want to, you can. I'm not going to expound on it. I'm just going to read what he said. Mark 16:17 to 18 He said and these signs will accompany those who believe believe what in my name they will cast out demons and they will speak in new tongues they will pick up serpents with their hands and if they drink any deadly poison it will not hurt them they will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover Jesus said very clearly, he gives kind of a little list of things that would accompany believers. And one of them, he calls them new tongues. Very interesting. Uh, For those of you who are a hardline cessationist and you don't believe in tongues and all of that, we should at least acknowledge at this point what Jesus has said, that they would accompany new believers. And we should investigate what he meant. Now I do have a a short list of uh, the purposes of tongues What the purpose for tongues is or was. And I'm just going to kind of go through these things quickly and kind of keep moving and uh, just track with me best you can. Like I said, if you can take notes, fine. If you can't write all these things down, don't worry about it. You can get the transcripts at our website. Purposes for tongues, according to my biblical research and which has been supported by a lot of scholars and stuff. I I don't try to think on my own. That's dangerous. Number one, tongues were given to remove language barriers... Between people groups. Why? So that the gospel could advance. I think that's the primary purpose for tongues to break down language barriers so that the gospel could be advanced. In Acts 2 1 to 6, one of my favorite sections of scripture I love that whole day of Pentecost and and the tongues and all of that stuff and the explosion and birth of the church but in Acts 2 1 to 6 the Holy Spirit basically anointed 120 Christians with the gift of tongues fell upon them tongues of fire gave them the gift of tongues why so that they could praise uh, God and so that they could preach the gospel to men from what 16 different nations that had gathered in Jerusalem for the feast of Pentecost clear example of how God gives tongues or gave tongues for the purpose of breaking down language barriers you had these people that were in the upper room 120 of them and they came down and preached the gospel and praised God in languages that they were unfamiliar with but that the entire group of people there could understand they were hearing them praise God and and proclaim the gospel in their own languages how mysterious and cool Tongues were given to remove language barriers between people, groups, so that the gospel could advance. Number two, tongues were intended as a sign to unbelieving Israel. 1 Corinthians 14, 21 to 22, Isaiah 28, 11 to 12. Not going to expound on that, going to nail that down in a little bit. But that's another reason why tongues were given. They were intended as a sign to unbelieving Israel, more particularly the day of Pentecost. Number three, tongues were given to new converts as a sign that they had been saved and indwelled by the Holy Spirit or baptized by the Holy Spirit. This really kind of corroborates or corroborates with what Jesus said in that that particular gift would be present in the lives of some believers. It would follow along with faith. And so we see that. And we hear about that there, and we have some examples of that. In Acts 10, 34-48, a group of Caesarean Gentiles got saved and spoke in tongues. By the way, that's kind of where we're studying right now in the book of Acts. We're taking a little pause now, but we're going to get back into that and study all of this. But a group of Caesarean Gentiles got saved and began to speak in tongues. The Jewish believers that were present, there were some there with Simon Peter when this whole thing took place. These Jewish believers that were present heard them extolling God in their own language and they marveled that the Holy Spirit was in them. You got to remember the Jews had this mindset that salvation and God was for them and them alone and now they, they're witnessing Gentiles being saved and, and filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking in these tongues which was a recognizable sign of salvation and they were marveling. They were marveling at the Gentiles having faith at this point. In Acts 19.6, 12 Gentile men from Ephesus got saved and spoke in tongues. Ephesus was a cultural melting pot with people from different tribes and tongues. The men were no doubt given the gift of tongues, probably for multiple reasons, but one in particular was so that they could spread the gospel in their ethnically diverse community they get saved they get filled with the Holy Spirit Paul touches them the Spirit comes into them they speak in tongues amongst each other and then what then they go out in Ephesus in their community and they begin to proclaim the gospel and there were culturally you know there were different people in that community Ephesus was a a cultural melting pot so that they could proclaim the gospel in tongues that others could hear And number four, tongues were given to believers for the purpose of building up and edifying the church. 1 Corinthians 14, 6. Tongues were given for the purpose of building up and edifying the church. In fact, I will go out on a limb to say that all of the spiritual gifts that were given by God to people and are still given to God by people are for the purpose of building up the church. Not building up oneself not building up anything other than other believers. They are for believers and for their own sanctification and for their own edification. And so we now have kind of a sense for why God gave tongues to his children for those reasons. There might be more. These are the general ones. And so that leads us to the great question, are tongues for today? No. Yes, they are. Are tongues for today? Are they to be practiced today? Does God still bless and give and anoint people with that gift today? That's the million dollar question, and that is the subject of debate and has been for hundreds of years. Are we going to nail it down today? For me personally, yes. For you, I don't know. I know where I stand on it, and that'll come out more as we go. So some say yes, and some say no. I'd say the majority in the church say no. The majority say no, tongues are not for today, just statistically speaking. But there are some that say yes. There are some that say yes. Now, here's a good passage to turn to. This is an interesting passage. I love this passage. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 13, And we're going to look at eight and nine just for a moment. Just give a tiny exposition on this. And we'll keep moving. This is really cool. I don't think that people are aware of what this beautiful little text says in all its depth. I'm not sure if I do, but I get some of it and it's pretty amazing what it says. In fact, I think Kevin read it earlier. 1 Corinthians 13, 8-9. It says, love never ends. Just starts just with a shotgun blast. Love never ends. Love is everlasting. Love is eternal. Love never stops. It never ceases. It continues through all ages. All the way up and through the eternal state. The everlasting kingdom of God. It never stops. Isn't that great? How many of us believe that? It never ends. But then he says this. As for prophecies, what? They will pass away. As for tongues, they will what? Cease. As for knowledge, what? It will pass away. And he says in 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. That's what he says there so clearly. Paul basically stated that God set an appointed time for prophecies, knowledge, and tongues to what end? In verse 9 he wrote that the things that are partial, like prophecy, like knowledge, will pass away over time, he says. And then close, be closed permanently, I suppose, at the onset of what he calls the perfect. Which is a reference to the everlasting kingdom of God. Or what might pop in our minds would be the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. That eternal kingdom of God which will come in the future. But Paul didn't place tongues in the same category, even though it's close to it, with ...prophecy and knowledge. He wrote that tongues would cease... ...rather than fade away slowly. Do you see it? If you see it, say, I see it. Do you see it there? These other ones will fade away slowly... ...until the perfect comes. But he says the other one, tongues, will what? Cease. There's a difference. He places it in a different category... ...as the other two spiritual gifts... Different category. He did not place it in the same category with prophecy and knowledge. He wrote that tongues would cease rather than fade away slowly, and the Greek verb he used means to cease permanently. Gone. Never to return is what it means in the Greek. It will end and it will never come back. It is done. Gonzoed. Finished. So the proper interpretation of verses 8 and 9 is this, paraphrased, God pre-planned to slowly phase out prophecy and knowledge and then to bring them to a close, to an end at the onset of the perfect, the everlasting kingdom. And God also pre-planned to bring tongues to a permanent end prior to the everlasting kingdom. Not a slow fade out, he's just going to end them. He's just going to bring it to an end. And so the great question comes, did God already cause tongues to cease? Or does he still use them today? Are they for today? The scripture's clear. At some point, he's going to bring them to an end and they're never going to return. Categorically speaking, that happens before this everlasting kingdom. And so the question is, are they for today? Did he bring them To closure? Did he cause them to cease? Did he cause them to end? Cessationists say tongues ceased at the end of the apostolic age, which would be when the last apostle John died, went to be with Christ. Continualists say that tongues are still going and will end in the future. Who is right? I and many others believe that the scriptures and church history make an incredibly strong argument against the continuation of tongues. But Phil, but pastor, so many do it. Do you think that because so many people do something that it's still continuing? That God has ordained for it to continue just because it continues to happen? Can we not ourselves carry on things through tradition and all of these things? I mean, it's a great question to ask. Just because something is continuing in, in some sense doesn't necessarily mean that God is continuing it. And the Jews are realigning themselves to fire up the sacrificial system again and someday they probably will. But we know that that's over with, don't we? You know, you know our, our, our default mode is to just to look at what's popular, to see what people are doing, and just to believe that it's okay. I mean, it must, it must be for today because so many are doing it. Isn't that kind of our default mode? If something's popular, if it draws a lot of attention, if everyone's doing it, we tend to claim it as truth, and we tend to align ourselves with it. That's our default mode. That's what we do. But I say just because people do something doesn't necessarily mean that God is continuing to bless and to work through it. Maybe he is. Who's right, the cessationist or the continualist? Well, I'd like to provide some evidences from Scripture, some evidences from church history that support cessationism, that support the ending of these things. First, evidence from Scripture. And just listen. Listen. If you're at odds with what I'm saying now, that's fine. I'm definitely not trying to cause a bunch of trouble up in here. I'll let God's Word do it. And it does it, does it not? Every time I read it, I'm like, I'm in trouble. I'd be the first person. I'm the first responder. I don't just look at it and go, everyone else is wrong. I look at it and go, I stink. I got issues. I got trouble. I got problems. First, example from scripture, example. The gift of tongues was a, (laughs) past tense, was a miraculous revelatory gift. And the age of miracles and revelation ended with the apostles. That's the typical cessationist view, I believe it. The last recorded, now listen to this though. The last recorded miracles in the New Testament occurred around A.D. 58. ...with the healings on the island of Malta... ...as recorded in Acts 28, 7 to 10. From AD 58 to 96, AD 96... ...when John finished the book of Revelation... ...no miracle is recorded. Miracle gifts like tongues and healing... ...are mentioned only in 1 Corinthians... ...an early epistle. Two later epistles, Ephesians and Romans... ...both discussed, uh, discuss gifts of the Spirit at length... ...but no mention is made... Of the miraculous gifts. No mention of tongues. By that time miracles were already looked on as something in the past. You can check that out in Hebrews 2, 3 to 4. Apostolic authority and the apostolic message needed no further confirmation. Before the first century ended the entire New Testament had been written and was circulating through the churches. The revelatory gifts had ceased to serve any purpose. And when the apostolic age ended with the death of the Apostle John... ...the signs that identified the Apostles had already become moot. 2 Corinthians 12.12. What is happening here is these gifts were given for a particular reason and purpose. And that was to prove the authority and teachings of the Apostles... But as the word of God was recorded and written and distributed, we didn't, you know, it was like there was no longer any need for these gifts to to, uh, help to prove what the apostles were saying. There were signs that were given. Like if an apostle said something in particular, he could back it up with a sign to prove what he was saying. He could perform a miracle or do these things. Jesus himself did this. And so once the Word of God got out there, it was written, it began to be distributed. Now the Word of God became the sign. It became the thing that testified and, 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 and solidified and girded up the message of the early church fathers and Christians. And so signs were given for a season before the Word of God was distributed. Makes sense. I mean, if you don't have the recorded Word, I mean, you have the Old Testament. If you don't have the New Testament, things are being written during this time. And you're going to say certain things, you're going to need to prove them by signs. And so God gave signs. These were revelatory gifts. Second, I already stated this, but I'll go into it in more detail. But tongues were intended as a sign to unbelieving Israel. They signified that God had begun a new work that encompassed the Gentiles. The Lord would now speak to all nations in what? All languages. The barriers were down and so the gift of languages symbolized not only the curse of God on a disobedient nation, but also the blessing of God on the whole world. Tongues were therefore a sign of transition between the old and new covenants with the establishment of the church, a new day had dawned for the people of God. God would speak in all languages. But once the period of transition was passed, the sign was no longer necessary. Very interesting. In a way, it's like God reversed, temporarily reversed what he had done and the curse that he had put on the world during the at the tower of babel incident where he frustrated all of the languages i mean he frustrated what by giving multiple language everyone spoke one language everyone was doing everything together and they were trying to build a you know erect a tower up into the heavens and so that they could kind of achieve their own thing and maybe fortify their own personal deity and all this stuff and so what did god do he came down upon them and Frustrated their language. He gave them all different language. All of a sudden nobody could understand each other. And then they spread out and populated the world. Well, at the day of Pentecost, he seems to sort of temporarily reverse that, doesn't he? Everyone's there. No one understands what anyone's saying except your own kind. 120 people come out proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the glories of Christ in what they can't understand some weird languages, but everyone else can understand them. Disconnected them with weird languages, unites them in Christ with language that everyone can understand. It's all centered on Jesus. It's all centered on the gospel. It's very interesting if you think about it. It's like a temporary reversal of what he did at the Tower of Babel. Temporary, mind you. <clears throat> very interesting. Third, the gift of tongues was inferior to other gifts. It was given primarily, what, as a sign, 1 Corinthians 14 and was also easily misused to edify self, 1 Corinthians 14 4. The church meets, I said this earlier, the church meets for the edification of the body, not self gratification. Or personal experience seeking. Therefore tongues had limited usefulness in the church. And so it was never intended to be a permanent gift. How about some evidence from history? I could exhaust this subject. We could talk about this for the next three months. I'd rather get back in Acts. But I'm just giving you some... Principal truths from scripture that denounce the practice that show that it was for a time and for a place and for particular purposes in many ways visions given for the, they're signs they were given for the same reasons although i do believe they continue to some degree but not like we're seeing in the church where people are getting a vision to go sit on a log what does that have anything to do with anything Evidence from history, and this is really, really strong. We tend to think that because people are doing these things like crazy today that the church has always done them like crazy. Eh. No, not true. Evidence from history is compelling. The evidence of history also indicates that tongues have ceased. It is significant that tongues are mentioned only in the earliest books of the New Testament. Paul wrote at least 12 epistles after 1 Corinthians and never mentioned tongues again. After 1 Corinthians, that was it. It was one of the first epistles he wrote. No mention of it after that. No mention of it after that. By default, those things that are to continue are mentioned consistently and over and over and over in Scripture. And how much theology today is based on one verse, one expression of something. Way too much. Way too much. It's significant that tongues is only mentioned in the earliest books of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians, after that, it's done. They're gone. Peter never mentioned tongues. James never mentioned tongues. John never mentioned tongues. And neither did Jude. Tongues appeared only briefly in Acts. I've read to you the examples of them. There's just a handful. And in 1 Corinthians, as the new message of the gospel was being spread. But once the church was established, tongues were gone. They stopped. The later books of the New Testament do not mention tongues again, and neither did anyone in the post-apostolic age. Chrysostom and Augustine, the greatest theologians of the Eastern and Western churches, considered tongues obsolete. Writing in the 4th century, uh, Christ, I think it's pronounced, Chrysostom is how it's pronounced, John Chrysostom. Chrysostom stated categorically that tongues had ceased by his time and described the gift as as an obscure practice. Augustine referred to tongues as a sign that was adapted to the apostolic age. In fact, during the first 500 years of the church, the only people who claimed to have spoken in tongues were followers of a a cat named Montanus, not Montana, but Montanus Montanus, who was branded as a heretic. The next time any significant tongue-speaking movement arose within Christianity was in the late 17th century. A group of militant Protestants in... uh, Ah, Sevignon or seven a or whatever region of southern France I can't speak French I need a tongue right now <laughs> and he ain't gonna give me one maybe I'll give you one I don't even know how to pronounce this whatever this region of southern France began to prophesy experience visions and speak in tongues the group sometimes called the seven all Prophets is remembered for its political and military activities, not its spiritual legacy. Most of their prophecies were unfulfilled. They were rabidly anti-Roman Catholic and advocated, advocated the use of armed force against the Roman Catholic Church. Many of them were consequently persecuted and killed by Rome. At the other end of the spectrum, the Jansenites, a group of Roman Catholic loyalists who opposed the Reformers' teaching on justification by faith, also claimed to be able to speak in tongues in the 1700s. Another group that practiced a form of tongues was the Shakers, not the movers and the Shakers, just the Shakers, an American sect with Quaker roots that flourished in the mid-1700s. Mother Ann Lee, founder of the sect, regarded herself as the female equivalent of Jesus Christ. She claimed to be able to speak in 72 languages. The Shakers believed that sexual intercourse was sinful even within marriage. Can't have that intimacy there. They spoke in tongues while dancing and singing in a trance-like state. Then in the early 19th century, Scottish Presbyterian pastor Edward Irving... And members of his congregation practiced speaking in tongues and prophesying. Irvingite or Irvingite prophets often contradicted each other. Their prophecies failed to come to pass. And their meetings were characterized by wild excesses. The movement was further discredited when some of their prophets admitted to falsifying prophecies. And others even attributed their giftedness to evil spirits. This group eventually became the Catholic Apostolic Church which taught many false doctrines, embracing several Roman Catholic doctrines and creating 12 apostolic offices. All of those supposed manifestations of tongues were identified with groups that were heretical, fanatical, and otherwise unorthodox. The judgment of biblically orthodox believers who were their contemporaries was that all those groups were aberrations. Surely that should also be the assessment of any Christian who is concerned with truth. Thus we conclude that from the end of the apostolic era to the beginning of the 20th century, there were no genuine occurrences of the New Testament gift of tongues. They had ceased, as the Holy Spirit said they would in 1 Corinthians 13, 8. The gift of tongues is not for today. And if you're not familiar with Pentecostalism, it was birthed in 1906. And it is based primarily on the speaking of tongues and baptism in or of the Holy Spirit where you receive this gift and chatter off these things. It's a new movement. It has 500 million adherents today. It is the fastest growing Christian movement within the church today. But it's new. It's theology, it's doctrines are new. They've been threaded throughout history, but they've been reformulated by William Seymour, if you're familiar with him. He is the father of that movement, 1906, the Azusa Street Revival. Have You ever heard of these things? These things are old to some degree, but they never took form. They were always rejected by Orthodox Christians as being heretical, aberrations, whatever. 1906, there's a resurgence of it, and the church and the world embrace it. That's a miracle. Maybe not. It's incredible. Now, what about angels and tongues? What about this thing that they call the angelic language? She left on a Honda? translation she left on a honda right what about angels and angelic tongues this is something that's huge today massive i i can speak this miraculous angelic language or i have this prayer language this angelic prayer language where i just recite these things back to god and it's a blessing to me or whatever what about that What do the scriptures have to say about the potential for or the idea or the theology of an angelic language? Do angels use a special language that can be learned and used by human beings? Many believe the answer is yes. And they base their theology on 1 Corinthians 13.1. Are you there still somewhere in the vicinity Turn over to 1 Corinthians 13.1 and then we're going to backtrack a little bit because we're going to do a little exposition on this text in context so that we can find out the absolute truth of this verse. It's not hard. If you look at it in context, you find the true meaning just as it is with all Scripture. If you look at Scripture and study Scripture without context, you can go anywhere you want. You must hold it in context. Things were said a particular people at a particular time for a particular reason and we just tend to look at it like it's all universal don't we it's not so take your Bibles and turn over there if you're there say I'm there question again do angels use a special language that can be learned and used by humans let's answer it by looking at the verse that some say is the proof that it exists First Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 13:1, it says if I speak in the tongues of men and what of angels. Well, shoot, that must mean there's an angelic language. Amen? Don't amen that. Let's just hold on a second. I don't want to blow anyone out, but just wait. But that's what people read, that's what they see, and then they get crazy with it. Look at it. It must be true. This is the Apostle Paul. He's a stud. He's bad to the bone. Greatest Apostle. Insane theologian. Knew the Old Testament. He had it written on the back of his hand. Hold on a second. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. Why? Because love is eternal. God is love. If I have not love, I am what? I'm really bad music in heaven. Right? I'm rap. I'm hip-hop. Some of you are like, I hate this guy. Hip-hop dog, that's my life. I didn't say, I wasn't about to say country. Country even though I feel a little bit of that. I'm not the biggest country fan, but we're in the dang Bible belt, agricultural belt here. And every time I DJ a wedding, because I do them all the time, play us some country. I've grown to like it a little bit. I like the old stuff. You like the older stuff? The new stuff, I don't even get that. That's pop. To me, that's pop, right? Give me some of that old stuff. Talk, talk to me about when you were in prison. <laughs> you saw a train roll by. You wish you were on it. Give me some Johnny Cash up in here, right? That's what I'm talking about. Rap. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am like rap music. At first glance, one might be led to believe that an angelic language does exist and that humans have the ability to speak. Why? Because it seems like Paul testified to it. Paul, the apostle Paul, great apostle, seems to indicate clearly that these things are true. Keep in mind, however, that we've isolated this verse from its context so far, which basically means that we have no idea why Paul wrote what he wrote, do we? He just made a statement. It doesn't make sense. Go up to somebody you have not had a conversation with and say, I like roses. Without any context, that's just weird. Just go up to some stranger at the mall. Pizza's good. Amen. I don't know if they'd say that, but they might look at you like, dude, I'm lactose intolerant. I mean, there's just no context for what we have here. You can't can't just take what he says literally and run crazy with it. We must know what he's referring to. He is trying to stress a particular point, is he not? Apart from its context, it would appear that Paul recorded for the church a universal truth about angelic speech and so many believe that but if we examine the verse in context we will see that it takes on an entirely different meaning now turn back a little bit to first corinthians 12 1 to 11 let's put it in context let's frame it in the conversation that he's having with these people let's frame it in the writing what he wrote to them he is making a point we got to do a little reading and a little expound and we'll get in there 1 Corinthians 12, 1 to 11, just turn back a little bit. Fly back there. Hopefully you got an ESV. All other translations ceased when we planted this church. I'm just kidding. There's some good ones out there. I like the literal stuff. Any fans of the literal word-for-word translation? I like the literal translations. I'm not big on the paraphrasing. I'm not big on the thought-for-thought. I like... I want to know how this stuff is broke down word for word. ESV is that way, and so is the NASB and the King James and the New King James. Those are good ones. 1 Corinthians 12 1 to 11. Let's stop screwing around. I'm screwing around. It says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Interesting. You better know what's going on here. I don't want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, non believers, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Verse 4 Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone, every one of his children. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, that's discernment, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Man, once you read this, you realize something very important here that the church at Corinth was a gifted church. Whoa! God had blessed these people with a plethora of gifts, lots of spiritual gifts happening in this little body. Pretty amazing. God had blessed these Corinthian members with gifts of wisdom and knowledge and faith and prophecy and discernment and tongues and interpretation of tongues. Eight and nine, we see it there. I believe miracles and healing are mentioned. They are, there mentioned, but I believe Scripture seems to indicate that only Jesus, the apostles, and a couple of deacons had the ability to perform them. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week. But they are in the sequence there, and so we can't just disregard them. They are there. Paul tells them this, so important, that the very Spirit of God had bestowed these gifts upon them. Why? As I said, for the purpose of their own good, for the edification, sanctification, building up of the saints. Verse 7, these were gifted folks at this church, incredible gifts, and they had incredible potential for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the kingdom, the very kingdom of God in their community. But they were missing one very important thing, the most important thing of all, and that is love. That is love. They had gifts. They had talents. I'm sure they were given up their resources. I, they probably looked a little bit like the earlier church of Acts two forty-two to 47, where they were just doing all these things and devoted to these things and all this. But one thing that they didn't have Was the most important thing? Love. No love. Love was gone. Love was gone. In many ways, the Corinthian church had become like the Ephesian church, which eventually what? Abandoned love. You have forsaken what? Your first love. Jesus, love for others, love for God, love for people. Revelation 2.4. The Corinthians had somehow become bent in on themselves. They had become prideful and self-seeking. The spiritual gifts they possessed became like trophies that they showed off and bragged about and lorded over one another. There was also a tremendous spirit of envy amongst them. They wanted each other's gifts because they believed some gifts were greater than others. If a man had the gift of prophecy, which is essentially preaching and teaching, others would see him as a higher leader with a higher gift, and they would burn with envy and jealousy wanting what he had. The Apostle Paul was made aware of their error, and therefore wrote chapter 13 as a response. And you people have lost it. You've lost the essence of who God is. He is love. You have lost the brotherly love for one another. You have the most talent out of any believers I've seen, but you have not love. This is our context. you you seeing it now in your mind's eye? He's going somewhere here. By the time he gets to 13.1, it's time to correct I'm telling you what you have, and now I'm going to tell you what's missing is what's happening in the text. And I'm going to tell you how to get back. Now, before we cross over into 13.1, let's look at the tail end of 12. 12.28 12, to 31. He ain't done building a case. He's not done exposing the error by any means. I am he's going to do it when he crosses over into 13 actually there was no crossover because there were no chapters and this is just one like conversation he's just riding fluid continuity all the way through we broke it up into chapters but before he gets there he's going to drop some more bombs he needs to if I lose love somebody drop a bomb on me it's easy to lose love in fact the church has always had a hard time with loving people Always, since it's incarnation, always. It is easier to be orthodox. It is easier to come and do these things. It's easier to do all the things that God has given us. It's easier to do that, but it's so hard to love. Think of people in your life that are difficult. How hard are they to love? Some of you are saying, impossible. I can't love that person. It's tough, isn't it? The church has always had a hard time loving people. It does today. In the name of love, it slaughters people with the Word of God or it joins in their behavior and supports their behavior and exercises tolerance and leads them to hell. Either of two extremes. I'll slaughter them with... The the Word says it, you fool! Or, hey, it's okay to be that way. Where's the middle ground? Where's the heart of Christ? Where is the Christ that says, No one here condemns you. I do not either. I protected you. Now go and sin no more. Christ dealt with sin decisively, but he did it in love. He didn't tell that woman who had been drugged to his feet, I protected you, there was no one else. There are no more accusers here, and I don't either. Now go ahead and continue in doing what you're doing. That's not love, that's hate. And it's certainly not love to kick her in the face and say you're wrong or to throw rocks at her like them Pharisees wanted to do. Where is love? Love. Let's look at some more grenades. 12:28 to 31 before expounding on 13:1. I'll read it and God has appointed, this is good. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. 29. Are all apostles are all prophets? are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And then he says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And then he says, and I will show you a still more excellent way. point that Paul makes in verse 28 is that there are different types of leaders who exercise different types of gifts. This is like a reiteration of verses 12 to 27 where he describes the body of Christ with its different members and different functions. And then in verse 29, Paul seems to turn on the sarcasm. It's as if he says, is everyone supposed to be an apostle? You all want to be like Peter, don't you? You all want to be like me, don't you? Is everyone supposed to be an apostle? Is everyone supposed to be a prophet? Is everyone supposed to be a teacher? Is everyone supposed to work miracles? Is everyone supposed to heal others? Is everyone supposed to speak in tongues? Is everyone supposed to be able to interpret tongues? Do you see it? This is what he's doing. It's it's almost like he's on a rant. All you care about is being like this other guy or this other gal. and, And hasn't God made us all different and given us all different gifts? Is everyone supposed to be an apostle? Can you imagine? This is the apostle of, this is like the apostle of love. This guy was gracious and merciful and loving unlike any I've ever seen. I mean, he's just extraordinary, right? Paul, can you imagine how maddening this must have been for him to plant a church there and for them to lose love and to use these gifts as trophies and to lord them over each other? I mean, it just must have been crazy for him. Have you ever read the entire letter of 1 Corinthians? It's hardcore. There's no messing around. The subtitle ought to be Christians Gone Wild. It should, because the whole thing is like one lengthy rebuke against behavior. You have lost love. You've done these things. Let's get back on track. 2 Corinthians is great. It's a little different. I like to read 1 Corinthians because it helps to keep me in check. Because I'm like them. We're not better than them. So he kind of runs through this series of, of like, mild corrections, mild rebukes. He's saying, is everyone supposed to be like this? Is everyone supposed to be like that? Basically, is everyone supposed to have the same gifts? No, he just got done saying, no, they're not. The body of Christ, everyone's different. There's a foot. It doesn't do what hands do. Right? You see it? Now, at first glance, it would appear that Paul ended his sarcastic onslaught with a command for the Corinthians to pursue the higher gifts. We see that in verse 31. But that's not at all what he did there. Instead, he rebuked them for earnestly desiring and pursuing what they perceived as the higher gifts rather than being content with what God had given them. A better rendering of verse 31 would be, but you earnestly desire the higher gifts. You want to be all these things and God has made them all different, but all you want to do is be the highest and have the highest gift. That's what it says. That's what he means. All you care about is becoming like those who think that you think are above you oh, you you want to become more popular you want to become more prestigious a lot like Ananias and Sapphira you want to become more powerful like them those who have these other gifts that you think are better you want to be like them none of you are content with the gifts God has given you and that is why you earnestly desire the higher gifts you keep pursuing them and wanting these things that you think are higher so that you can be better and in the midst of it all where's love this is selfish vainglory This might be the biggest lead-in to make one point I've ever given in my life. But the scriptures are the ones that that give the lead-in. This is context. You understand? It's going to change the meaning of the verse when we get to it. What does he say? Look at what he says at the end of 31. All this is going on, but I'm going to show you a more excellent way. Isn't that what he says? I'm going to show you something different. More excellent way must be the way of the Lord. How do you think they felt when they read that? More excellent way. Wait a minute. I I thought our way was the more excellent way. I thought what we were doing was the more. eh, No. I'm going to show you a more excellent way and then. Pow! He goes into the love passage, chapter 13. Now look over at 13.1. It's in context. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging, a clanging cymbal. Paul begins his correction by identifying the thing that the Corinthians treasured the most, the gift of tongues. That's why he began with it. They were obsessed with the gift of tongues, just as many in the church are today. Tongues in the New Testament is always a reference to the languages of people or to the physical organ used in speech or language, our tongues. Here, Paul clearly means languages. This is what he's referring to languages. The text could be rendered if I speak in the languages of men and of angels. Now let me explain to you what he's doing here. Notice the word if. If means hypothetically speaking. If I could do something. If. Enter in the hypothetical. Not I can do what exists. If I could. Paul basically portrays himself as a man who has the ability, okay? He's casting an image. He's portraying himself, hypothetically speaking, as a man who has this incredible, he portrays himself as a man who has this incredible ability to speak like the greatest orators and philosophers in history. Maybe like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. That's what men means there. What he means is the greatest men. If I had the ability to speak eloquently like the greatest Men, maybe like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, that's the guys, those are the guys that would have been running through their minds. He then portrays himself, listen to this, hypothetically, he then portrays himself as having language skills that are far above men like them. The language skills of angels who are what? Higher than men, Hebrews 2.7. Paul was speaking in purely hypothetical terms. There is no biblical teaching of a unique or special angelic language or dialect. In the countless records of their speaking to men, angels speaking to men in the scripture, angels always speak the language of the person being addressed. There is no indication that angels have a heavenly language of their own that men could learn. So the answer to the question, do angels use a special language that can be learned and used by human beings is absolutely not. Not according to scripture. He was speaking hypothetically to make a point. You want this gift so bad? Well, let's, let me show you something. Let's say I have it to the highest level. If I ain't got love, it's worthless. And you don't have love. Hypothetical. He was not giving us a universal truth that an angelic language exists and that we can learn it. By no means. There is no evidence of that whatsoever. If you disconnect it from context, you can get crazy with it. He's stressing a point. What is Paul's big point in 1 Corinthians 13:1 after throwing this volley of information through 12? It's fairly simple. If he had the ability to speak with the skill and eloquence of the greatest men, even with angelic eloquence, he would only become a noisy gong or clanging cymbal if he did not have love. Love was what was missing in the Corinthian church. And the absence of love rendered all that they were doing as useless, as useless as pagan worship. In New Testament times, the pagan deities of Uh, oh this one's a hard one to pronounce but I think it's Sibylle Sibylle, these are deities, pagan deities Sibylle, Bacchus and you've heard of probably Dionysus they were all worshipped through speaking in ecstatic noises the smashing of gongs the clanging of cymbals and through the blaring of trumpets that's how the pagans worshipped their gods Paul's hearers Clearly, got his point, unless it is done in love, ministering the gift of languages or speaking in any other human or angelic way amounts to no more than those pagan rituals. It is only gibberish in Christian guise. And I think the evidence... It's fairly clear that tongues have ceased and that there is clearly, there is not a doubt within my mind. Okay, I still am teetering a little bit on tongues. Could they be? Are they gone? I sense they are, but I do not believe in angelic tongues no matter what. There's no scriptural, scriptural basis for them. We've just looked at the passage that the only so-called supportive passage for it, and we've obliterated it, with the context so there's no angelic language there's no angelic prayer language it doesn't it doesn't exist. it's not scripture friends we need to believe what scripture teaches and practice what scripture teaches not follow what others do there's no glory to god in it if we just do things for the sake of doing them i think the evidence is fairly clear especially towards an angelic language But what if God's appointed time to bring tongues to an end has not yet come? You see, in my mind, the answer to whether they continue or not is not perfect. It hasn't been perfectly made. I think the evidences are there that show that it's gone. But there's nothing in Scripture that just clearly says it's done. And so I am hesitant to just rid myself of it completely and and just completely disembowel myself. Goodbye. Goodbye. Okay? God could very well, I suppose, still use these things. But I think if he does, they're going to follow scriptural guidelines, just as in visions we talked about in incredible detail over the last couple of weeks. I don't personally believe in tongues, and I've got plenty of reason to, be, uh, to, to speculate because I've seen what's happening in churches. And people are running crazy with this stuff. And it doesn't, it, it doesn't look like it's helping to build up the church or do any of these things. You've seen it, right? And so I'm, I'm very hesitant to say it's there. But maybe, what if God's appointed time to bring tongues has not yet come? What if tongues are for today? What if they are happening today? What if they are legitimate? In order to establish firmly, we're bringing it to an end, in order to establish firmly the public practice of tongues as a ministry to the church and to prevent its abuse as a quest for personal fulfillment, as in the Corinthian deal, Paul put forth a set of rules designed to control its corporate exercise. The rules for tongues are listed in 1 Corinthians 14, 27 to 33. And then there's one mentioned over in 1 Corinthians 12, 10. I'm going to read it and I'm going to give you the rules. And what this will do is if they haven't ceased, again, my opinion, they're gone. But if you're on the fence and you're not sure, look into this more. But I'll tell you what, if it's happening, they better meet these scriptural guidelines. This is how you test the spirits right here, this part. When you hear these things and you look out there and it doesn't line up with this, you know it's false. Because God has made it clear how these things are to work. Why? Because he's a God of order. 1 Corinthians, and he wants no, he doesn't want confusion in his church. He's a God of order. Keep that in mind. 1 Corinthians 14, 27 to 33. I'll go through these quick. It says, if any speak in a tongue, in a language, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church, and speak to himself and to God It's confusing. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Some translations say order. Rule number one that's listed here. Rule number one is a limit of one, two, or three persons is set for participation in tongues during a worship session. Verse 27. One, two, or three, no more. If you see a building that's erupted in it and everyone's doing it, there's your sign right there. Everyone's speaking in it. Wait a minute. The way that God does it is He does it through one, two, or three at the most at a time. Rule number two The one, two, or three tongue speakers are to make their contribution in sequence, one at a time or in turn, never simultaneously. It says right there in verse 27. Not everyone can burst out in this thing. It has to be one and then another and then another. That's the way that God has ordained for it to be. So if everyone's exploding and doing it, wait a minute. It's supposed to be one, two, or three, and wait a minute. They're not supposed to happen simultaneously. Not everyone erupts out in this chatter. You see it? It's there in the text. I didn't make the rules. You might be looking at me, you made these rules. I didn't make them. Rule three, and this one is massive. This is the one that is abused the most in churches. Number three, there must be a person with the gift of interpretation present. Should no such person be available, he or she, that's the tongue speaker, should refrain from speaking in tongues. Verse 28, that's the one that's the most abused. People rattle off stuff and nobody tells anyone what it means. I've watched a zillion times on Praise the Lord or whatever show it is that I turn on on TBN. Have you seen it have you seen it with your own eyes have you witnessed that where people are saying things and and people are waiting and then no one tells anyone no one says what the person said no one translates i see it all the time well kenneth copeland's a big one on that he'll get on stage with some other guy and they'll speak tongues towards each other while the audience claps and whistles and laughs and nobody knows what's being said well according to scripture it's false That's a circus routine. Tiny amen came from somewhere back there. The only one. I feel like Shrek. I feel like I'm about to get lynched up here. This is tough stuff, right? This is tough stuff. I don't want to be offensive with it. It's just what the Word of God teaches. Rule five, when the contribution in tongues has been interpreted... In intelligible language, it becomes a prophecy that needs to be evaluated by the recipients, verse 29. Okay, you can't just speak in it and then interpret it. People have to pause and ponder what it means and see how it applies to their lives. That's not happening either, is it? I guess it does in some circles. But on the grand stage of the church today... Rule six, the genuineness of the experience is to be tested by those who have the ability to distinguish between spirits. That's 1 Corinthians 12.10. That's the other rule that comes in in that verse. Why? So that they can test everything, hold fast to what is good, and abstain from every form of evil. Verses 31 to 32. Okay. Okay. There have to be people there, the prophetic people, the ones that know the word of God, who have to listen to what's been translated, listen to the dialogue, the conversation that's taking place, and they have to weigh out what's being said and discussed against Scripture. Because if it doesn't affirm Scripture, those prophets, those Bible teachers need to say, what you've received and heard is from the devil. Because it's opposed to Scripture. Basically what this means is that any Tongue, anything that's said, any vision, any of the, all these things must affirm Scripture. They cannot contradict Scripture or pull Scripture into question. They are to affirm Scripture. And rule seven. Persons participating in worship, and this is another one, should be in control of their conduct at all times. They may not appeal to ecstatic states to excuse disorderly conduct or infractions to the rules of worship. Disorder and confusion are not inspired by God since he is a God of peace and unity. In verse 33, some people take these things so far that they just stir up an emotional uproar and everyone gets crazy and it just it looks like a mosh pit and that doesn't bless and honor God or build up the church, and it doesn't line up with scripture. I didn't make the rules, God did. If what we see, maybe if even what we believe in our own heart, maybe we have traditions, maybe we, we've tied ourselves to these things and we think they're all true and all these. maybe we really need to evaluate what we believe and why we believe it. And. If what we're seeing out there doesn't line up with these things, then we can discern truth from fiction. Another interesting thing to note is what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 14.1. 1 Corinthians 14.1. He said plainly, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Well, contextual paraphrase. Don't spend all your time trying to acquire or exercise the gift of tongues. Pursue love and the gift of prophecy, which is the preaching and teaching of God's word. If you have the gift of prophecy, use it to build up the church. If you do not have it, use whatever gift God has given you and then to build up the church and then put yourself under approved men who never shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God's word so that you may become built up I love that 14.1 the big point there is pursue love you know we can become so obsessed with things whether they be spiritual gifts or possessions or whatever and we are so clearly commanded throughout all of Scripture to pursue love. If we are to pursue anything, it is love. And God has made that available because He first pursued us with His love. Now Christ has come near to us and pursued us through prayer, through singing songs about Him, through the reading and preaching of His Word today. Hasn't He? This isn't meant to be the sermon isn't meant to be a crushing blow it's an exhortation to live a biblical life and to glorify God and to honor God and to help those in the church who need help who don't understand things about the truth we don't take this information and this, this truth out there and bludgeon people with it that is to be unloving and we shouldn't turn a blind eye to their behavior because that is unloving Somehow we need the mercy and grace of God to love as Christ loved, gently but firmly. Christ has come near to us and pursued us through His means of grace today. May we pursue Him through the sacrament of communion. May we draw close to Him through this time of confession and remembrance of the sacrifice He made for us. Remember what the juice and bread symbolize, His blood and broken body, which were the currency he used to pay for our sin debt. What a price he paid. May we reflect on what he's done. It's a finished work. We have nothing to earn. And may we confess our sins to him humbly. God, I've been wrong about tongues. God, I've been right about tongues and I've just been a jerk about it with people. God, I'm just mixed up in this sin. I've got this imagery on my computer. Whatever it is, confess it. Be refreshed in this time. This is a moment of great worship for us where we can be transparent and open with our God who has invited us in to be that way. And don't forget to thank the Lord. Don't forget to thank the Lord Jesus for speaking to us clearly and with power. Amen.